0: Heathcote and Green, Eccentric Supreme. Our episodes are many and sometimes obscene. Bear with me. (laughs) From murder to malice, and sometimes we even talk of the phallus. (laughs) (laughs) Topics are wide and I cannot hide that I really like the Heathcote tribe. Always eccentric and sometimes consistent. I pride myself on being a bitch of an assistant. (laughs) The podcast world brought us together and now we always love to chat and have historical blether. From Lancaster to London, Glasgow and more, my mate Joe will write episodes that you will adore. So tune in every Friday to Consistently Eccentric. Nothing fucking rhymes with eccentric, so just do it, (laughs) alright.
1: Hey up, I'm Joe Heathcote and this is Consistently Eccentric a British history podcast where we try to make sense of some of the lesser-known and more absurd people and events these islands have produced. So let's get started with... This story takes place during the fun time that was the First World War. That's where we're going to. Yeah, grim. As it was known, at the start at least. Just a quick European war. Let's just shake some things out.
0: Just a jolly.
1: And I'm not saying that Germany was better prepared for world war one than most other countries but what i am saying is that within three weeks of austria declaring war on serbia german forces had already taken control of luxembourg and the capital of belgium as they executed a plan to bypass the franco-german border in the hopes of encircling the french in order to win a quick victory against their major um, economic and industrial rival on mainland europe they're so efficient, aren't they? I feel like the plan was written up just in case of war, like, you know, mm. kept behind some glass with a little hammer. And it was, uh, yeah. yeah, if, if anything ever does kick off, just smash that. It's sort Break of here out there, for yeah.
0: emergencies.
1: So the invasion of Belgium had led to Britain joining World War I on August 4th, 1914, which, you know, I mean, we weren't going to get involved.
0: That's not like us. We very much like getting involved in most things.
1: I know, but this was a, this was a big old war. Mm. But we had a treaty with Belgium that said that if Belgium were invaded, we'd come riding to their aid. Uh, and to be fair to us, we actually kept our word in this. The British are coming. Not, not quick enough, though. <laughs> uh, because the Germans have figured out that it was a risk worth taking because they reckon that they could blitz through Belgium before Britain or anyone else could get anywhere near the country. However, although Little Luxembourg was subdued within a day, and let's be fair to them, I mean what are they gonna do against the might of, you know a I mean, German blitzkrieg?
0: Tiny, isn't it?
1: Yeah. When I say they, you know, subdued Luxembourg, I think that they were just sort of passing through and eventually the German army realised that they were occupying all the space that was Luxembourg and just called it a win. <laughs>
0: <laughs> they just need somewhere to store their troops. Oh, sh- oh shit! We've just actually taken over your country. Yeah,
1: Luxembourg became just a giant German war cupboard for the duration. We'll just, we'll just put it all in Luxembourg, and then it's we know where it is if we need it. Yeah, we. Uh, but the Belgians, they weren't as easily defeated. The Germans lost a valuable time during the siege of Liege, which. I'm guessing is more fun to say than it was to participate in.
0: I really liked your pronunciation of that.
1: Liege. Mm. I Li- hope it is. Liage. Liage? When I first wrote Liage. it, I was like, oh, Siege of Liege. That's fun, <laughs> but I'm assuming that's not the pronunciation. <laughs> How do you uh, spell it? L-I-E-G-E. Liege. Mm. And the Siege of Liege was actually the first real battle of World War I. The confident Germans are banked on taking around two days to overrun the fortified city. But a mixture of difficult terrain, very strong resistance from Belgian soldiers and civilians, and an inconveniently timed thunderstorm increased the actual total time for um, subjugation Mm. to around 11 days.
0: That's quite a lot, isn't it?
1: Mm. And I think the other thing that the Germans hadn't really considered was the Belgian strategy was basically to try and hold out long enough for reinforcements to arrive their entire sort of military plan in case of invasion was just try to stubbornly hold out for as long as possible until your european sort of um you know friends arrive to, to Did take The Netherlands over.
0: not get involved they border Belgium The Netherlands is north of Belgium
1: Is it? Yeah
0: Oh. I'm looking on a map. Oh, you're looking on
1: a map. <laughs> to be honest, I don't really know what the Dutch did during World War I. Oh, they were probably
0: smoking weed and just being cool.
1: I know they really they really hated the Germans during World War Two, which has created the world's most one-sided um, football rivalry. Oh, really? Yeah, the, okay. the Dutch absolutely hate... They consider Germany to be their big rivals, and the Germans do not feel the same way about the Dutch, which oh. is very upsetting for the Dutch, because there's, it's one thing having a, a rival that you hate... But having a rival that you hate who is Doesn't at best indifferent you. to you is. Yes. yes,
0: you mean nothing to us. Yeah.
1: So, yeah, you know, the entire Belgian game plan was we've just got to hold out for as long as we can. Yeah. And hopefully, someone will turn up. The delay did, did not save Belgium, but it did allow the French and British forces, the British expeditionary force being led by the aptly named Field Marshal French.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Love
1: it to see what was happening and to undertake a series of counterattacks that became known as the battle of the frontiers which was actually six separate battles okay although the french used their secret weapon of bicycle mounted cavalry because of Hold course on, they wait. did yeah they were on bikes bicycle mounted cavalry yes okay i don't think they were like charging in i don't think you had like sabers drawn on a bicycle i think it was more a case of you could use the bicycles to um, change position quicker.
0: Yeah, but surely if you were like, like, it's not going to be tarmac, is it? No, it's going but to the be French on like, pretty, bumpy, yeah, rough, mud, like is why the
1: French are so, so good at cyclocross. They're used mm. to riding in all conditions. But yeah, the the idea was you'd be able to move faster than if you were just you know walking in terms of troops or marching. Okay, so fine, you can, yeah. You can out maneuver your opposition, but even with those. The counterattack was quickly repulsed, and the resulting battles established a shaky front line across most of northern France. Okay. So the Germans had had their idea to get an early advantage. The, Bel- the Belgians hadn't saved themselves, but they would definitely delayed the Germans long enough for, you know, Britain and France to decide what they were going to do. They had a go at a um, counterattack to try and break the German lines. That didn't work out. Now we're at a bit of a stalemate. Okay. It's fine, you know. I'm sure that's not going to last. With over 300,000 casualties suffered on each side throughout August and early September, the leaders of the two forces realised that continued frontal attacks were likely to result in heavy loss of life for very marginal gains, at best. You reckon? Yeah. So when I say, that you know, they, they realised that the ebb and flow, it took them a while to realise that this wasn't going to work, and they threw, you know, over a quarter of a million people at it before they realised... Mm, we need we need a different anywhere. idea. Yeah. Unfortunately, though, both sides came up with the same plan to try and gain the advantage. En masse, the armies began marching to try and outflank each other. The front line continued stretching in a northwesterly direction. If you if you think you know when you're playing thumb war with someone, yeah, and you end up in this sort of where you're both trying to go over the top, <laughs> and it just ends it's this round ne- and round and yeah, round never and round. Anything. Imagine that, but it's just two armies constantly trying to go over the top of each other, slowly climbing north through France. Oh, okay.
0: Yeah, got you.
1: But eventually, the armies had to choose between stopping this game or getting wet because they had reached the North Sea near the French-Belgian border. Okay. Yes. This area is known as Flanders.
0: Uh, Oh, God, yes, we all know. Yeah.
1: It is low-lying... Crisscrossed with canals and drainage ditches. Because the water table in this particular area of the countryside is very, very close to the surface. Yeah. And by close, I mean that in autumn and winter, even moderate rainfall will turn the terrain into something resembling the consistency of fondue.
0: <laughs> but don't eat it.
1: Oh, God, no. Unless you're really, really hungry. Mm. Uh, in which case, still, probably don't eat it. As both sides had arrived in Flanders in early October, the ground was already pretty wet, and it would have been an act of pure insanity to try and fight a pitch battle in such an environment.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, we can agree on that. I mean, Yeah,
0: I'm just getting festival mud vibes. Yeah, and,
1: you know, these, these are at this, at this time, you haven't gone through the churn, so most of the, the, the soldiers fighting on the front lines here are mm. professional soldiers. We haven't yep. got to the point where it's just conscripts being thrown at it, cause these are still the early months of the war. So you've got experienced military leaders with experienced soldiers. It's all going to be fine. They're not going to do something suicidal. The first Battle of Ypres took place over the course of a month from October 19th to November 22nd, 1914. It was, in effect, a series of attacks and counterattacks to test the lines of the opposing armies and led to the deaths of approximately 250,000 soldiers for no significant gains by either side.
0: What Mm. a waste.
1: By late November, both sides were exhausted, low on ammunition and suffering from the rank-and-file soldiers refusing orders to advance.
0: Okay, yeah, I... Yeah, I'd be the
1: same. Because uh, the other thing is, at this stage in the war, although you know we had the weapons that could had a higher rate of fire and we had all of these machines of war, we hadn't ramped up the production of the ammunition for it yet. Okay. So,
0: had all these weapons with nothing to fire. Yeah,
1: you know, you, you, we well, you had these caches of weapons, but no one had predicted how quickly the armies would be able to go through, you know, the, the bullets and the, the um, artillery the shells that they had yeah so it was it was to the point where they were like right well we've got all of these massive guns but we can't actually use them because we're running out of ammunition and then we're having to wait for more to be manufactured and brought to the front line um just just
0: have a picnic in the meantime
1: well essentially because they'd run out of bullets the decision was taken to call it quits for the rest of the winter and some front lines were established in Flanders okay. because i mean the other thing is, once, once your soldiers are saying, actually, no, this is suicide, we're not going to do it, if one or two people say that, you can shoot them and call them deserters and use them mm-hmm. as an example. If, like, thousands of soldiers are unifying and saying, no, you've kind of just got to bow to that. Power tra- to the people. Yeah, you've got to you try and maintain order. Because if you try and push them and everyone pushes back, suddenly they'll realise that, actually...
0: Revolution.
1: Yeah, there's more of them than there is of you, so it's the softly, softly approach by the uh, generals at this stage. Hmm. Now, even though, you know, I said no one really got any gains, it could be argued that the Germans had gotten a slightly better deal out of the First Battle of Ypres. Okay. Not only had their estimated casualties been significantly lower than those reported by the Allies, but they had managed to capture the only significant high ground in the local area, which was two man-made spoil heaps that had been created whilst cutting out a route for a railway. Ah. So, yeah, just two slight lumps in an otherwise <laughs> Flat. lumpless area. Yeah, yeah, fine. These hills were an imposing 270 metres tall. Okay. And not only offered a perfect vantage point for observing the Allied front lines, but were also practically the only place within 50 miles in any direction that were not permanently waterlogged. So, oh, okay, so
0: they're, in safe, they're no, on safe ground.
1: Yeah, they were good as a vantage point. It was also the premium place to go to dry your socks. So all the Germans oh, were walking around with nice foot, yeah, nice toasty feet, whereas everyone else was having to deal with the trench foot. Oh, the two hills, they, they had names. Ooh. One was inventively called the Caterpillar. Okay. And the other was less inventively called Hill 60. <laughs> What happened to Hill 1 to 59? Oh, there there were others. There's Hill 70 that I saw, Hill 65. I think they went up in integers of 5 rather than uh, individual. But this was was Hill 60. Okay. And as the great military leader, Obi-Wan Kenobi, pointed out, in a galaxy far, far away, having the high ground always offers a significant advantage in battle. Mm. And so the British forces spent the winter lull in hostilities... Trying to devise a plan that would allow them to take Hill sixty from the Germans as soon as possible come the springtime. So they're not they're not just gonna sit there and, and wait. Okay. They're gonna try So and, they're planning. Yes. Yeah, they want this
0: they want number sixty.
1: They want Hill sixty. They they want it bad. And <laughs> they're gonna figure out a way to get it. They decided to try a less direct method of attack than just simply run at the hill screaming with the guns out, because they tried that a few times and it It hadn't ended well. Reasoning that the Germans couldn't use their advantage of being able to see what the Allies were doing if the Allies weren't on the ground, but were actually below the ground, Mm. the decision was taken to dig tunnels underneath the German positions on Hill 60.
0: They love a tunnel, Mm. don't
1: they? Well, this would be the first time the newly formed Royal Engineer Tunnelling Companies had been deployed in the field, and British Mm. commanders were excited to see if the strategy worked. Because the thing about using tunnels as a way of breaking you know, through um, front lines and things is, up until this point in history, battles have been more set-piece things. You didn't have the time in one place during a military campaign where yeah, digging a tunnel would have been beneficial.
0: You kind of went there, fought, and...
1: You both fell back. Yeah. Yeah. you you pick a ground to fight on, you'd go and fight at that ground, and then you'd fall back to your your sort of camps it's safe bits yeah, here because they're static for so long finally it makes sense to try and use this as a technique the 173rd tunnelling company were the lucky guys asked to dig down 16 foot into the waterlogged mud of Flanders in early March 1915
0: that was quite hard actually wasn't it
1: quite hard, quite terrifying mm, yeah. very clay based mud apparently which is always fun yeah so they sort of dug it out, did a bit of pottery in the evenings.
0: Might <laughs> as well use it. You know, the whole of London is on clay, and that's why they don't have massive skyscrapers and stuff, because the the, the ground couldn't hold it.
1: Wow. Well,
0: Little that, fact for you.
1: I did not. One of many reasons why, you know, it shouldn't be the capital. Maybe we should move somewhere a bit more... I mean, at least Edinburgh's built on granite.
0: Mm, yeah. Solid. Yeah,
1: dependable. Do you reckon
0: in... However many years, I mean, obviously not in our lifetime, but the capital will change. Like when it goes underwater, because wow. it's gonna, isn't it? It's gonna have to at some point. Global warming is like a thing. Yes, like, it's gonna have to move.
1: Well, I mean, yeah, capitals generally will move over time. Um, so I'd I'd say probably, a uh, my vote for the new capital. Mm. Do you know Birmingham? Nice people. Do uh... you
0: think, I I reckon Manchester would get it. I reckon Manchester would fight for it. No, I reckon they'd get it because they're kind of they've they're kind of second in command now, aren't they?
1: You reckon that's why they moved some of the b b c there They were sort of laying yeah. the groundwork yeah <laughs> well, do you know what? We'll never know the team who were digging in the clay not under London but under Flanders, they went down sixteen feet and then they started inching forwards in three separate tunnels. Towards the German lines until, by April 10th, they had made it over a hundred yards and were indeed directly under the German front line. So they managed it.
0: Terrifying.
1: Yeah, because these aren't big tunnels. This isn't like Euro Tunnel. No, these are tiny little tunnels. This is like crawling. Yeah, and. You know, it's constantly waterlogged, so there'll be the constant drip of water.
0: And if it collapses as well.
1: Oh yeah, the, the fear of collapse would have been real. And then you just, you know, <laughs> oh my god. You've suddenly become like the, the filling of a clay sandwich. <laughs> it's not. You a...
0: are the pottery.
1: <laughs> not a fun way to die, I wouldn't think. During the digging of the southmost tunnel, the southmost? During the digging of the southernmost tunnel, the Royal Engineers realised they could hear what appeared to be an echo which was odd, as the thick mud that they were digging through normally deadened any sounds that they made. So they're, they're going, this ain't, oh, this ain't right. I'm, I'm not actually digging, but I can hear the sound of digging.
0: Oh, the Germans have the same idea, didn't they?
1: They stopped, yeah, when they stopped working to figure it out, they realised it was the sound of another group of men digging another <sighs> tunnel nearby. No. And who, who could that be?
0: The Germans. Oh, yes,
1: because, you know, it's a good idea. And if it's a good idea, idea. of course the Germans are going to have had it as well. Hmm. Luckily, though, the three British tunnels remained undiscovered. And the soldiers, having completed their tunnels, began very quietly, very quietly, filling the chambers at the end of each with lots and lots of explosives. Uh. The North Tunnel had two mines planted in it, each with two thousand pounds of explosives, the middle tunnel had two mines with two thousand seven hundred pounds of explosives, and the south tunnel only had one mine, which was only packed with five hundred pounds of gun cotton. And I'm assuming they, were they
0: bored by that point?
1: Well, I'm assuming that it wasn't out of boredom. I think they'd run out of explodey things. Ah, uh, okay. And they didn't. I mean, make- it was still
0: it will still do damage oh
1: it'll still do damage but i think they sort of looked at it and they're like i, th- I thought we had more and then they've yeah. had a conversation well do you want to do you want to take some out of tunnel one and two and we'll sort of make up the difference and it's like oh shit no can't be
0: ours awesome. it's nah.
1: it's it's cold and damp down there and you know explosions explosion who cares <laughs> <laughs> it's all gonna go up i don't i don't know that we need it to go up in a uniform way yeah just get it done yeah just get it done the order to attack took place at seven o five a.m., and the mines were detonated. That's very specific. I'm I'm pretty sure they probably made, gave the order at seven a.m., but it took five minutes for it to to get around and to be you know okayed and understood. And probably the first time they pressed the plunger, because I assume it's a plunger, nothing happened, and somebody wow. had to go and go oh, fucking. And then they found the bit that had just come a bit loose, and they tightened it. Dave,
0: around. Dave, you wired it wrong. You've wired it wrong, mate. Come
1: back here. Sort it out. Ah, <laughs> oh, fuck. I have as well. I have. <laughs>
0: oh, I've, I fucking put the blue in the green and I fuck. I fucked it up, mate. Fuck.
1: Why do we use such colours? It's difficult. I'm colourblind. I'm colour-blind. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it took him five minutes to get that shit sorted out, bloody Dave. But at five, uh, 7.05 precisely, the mines were detonated. <laughs> the explosion blew debris... Three hundred foot in the air, and was so violent that it actually caused some casualties to the advancing British soldiers oh, as well. Oh, no way! With a massive hole in the lines where once there had been German soldiers, the British were able to take the slightly shorter Hill Sixty from the German forces. Okay. So it was just shock and awe, you know. And the right. Germans did try to counterattack, but they were even the ones who'd survived the blast. They were disorientated, you know, because there was the percussive sort of shockwave as well. And Mm, a lot of them just, they they managed to get to the feet just in time to be bayoneted by the advancing British, so it was not a nice place to be. And the British forces, they enjoyed the victory and the view from the top of Hill 60 for two glorious weeks. Oh, nice. That was truly a lovely... When was it? This is February? This is April.
0: Okay, so the weather's picking up. Yeah, the weather's picking up. Nice views.
1: See, third song yeah they're, they're just having a great time up there, just
0: living their best life,
1: Unfortunately, for the British and French soldiers, though, the Germans had their own new tactic that they'd been waiting for a perfect chance to try out. The first attack using chlorine gas took place on april twenty second Oh gosh! killing upwards of one thousand four hundred French soldiers who fled in all directions leaving a two-mile-wide gap in the line that the German soldiers were able to walk through pretty much unopposed.
0: That's quite early, isn't it? Like mustard gas and chemical gas and all that. I always thought that was later on. In...
1: Um, it was later on that the British and uh, the Allied forces started to use it, because they hadn't been developing it.
0: Because I believe that Hitler, when he was in World War I, got mm-hmm. some like damage to his lungs
1: Yeah. from but- it. The original, the original uh, gas attacks that the British used were after they had found sort of um, caches of gas that the Germans had abandoned.
0: Ah, oh, okay, so then they developed it themselves yeah. after that. Cool.
1: So the first time it was used, it was a game-changer, and there was this two-mile-wide gap in the line that the German soldiers, they took two towns, 2,000 prisoners, and 51 artillery pieces. Do we and know what towns they took? uh It was. It is written down, but I don't know. Two French towns. Two French towns. Fine.
0: Because I've got a map in front of me. I'm trying to follow it. As <laughs> we,
1: yeah. I, I gave up. I was just. I tried to follow it all, but military maps give me palpitations because there's so so much is going on, and there's there's dashed lines, and there's dotted lines, and there's shaded bits, and there's different colours. i'm like, I don't, I, I know I you're understand. trying to tell a, a story in four dimensions using a map, but I can't follow this. So there's
0: a this map that I'm looking at. So it's on Google Maps. <laughs> and there's, um, obviously, I can see the Belgium-French border. And um, it looks like a face in one part. It's like a side profile of somebody's face where the border
1: is. Well, It's there very you interesting. Go. Yeah. I mean, is is there a face there, or are you projecting onto... The a no, French border. i can
0: see I can see effect well, I can see like the outline of a nose going into the curve of the mouth into the chin into the neck with a nice sort of croft hairline
1: yeah but yeah the the thing about this first use of gas was the Germans didn't think it was going to be as successful as it was, and they actually, if they'd have you know planned for it, they could have advanced much much further. They kind of took the objectives that were sort of like, well, if we're really lucky, we'll get this, this, and this, and then they all stopped.
0: Oh, okay.
1: You know, and that's just, mm, it's so war was, lucky.
0: War's just horrible, isn't it? Mm.
1: But in terms of the Allied view of it, it's like, thank God they stopped because they they've basically blown right through. The thing that we've all been trying to do all the way through this war so far, they managed it, and they were so shocked at their success, they are like, oh, my God.
0: Oh, God. Yeah, if they did plan for it and then they kept going and pushing, 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 pushing back, it could have been a very different story, couldn't it? Mm.
1: But having seen just how effective the chlorine gas has been, the Germans thought, hmm, do you know what? That might be useful in taking back a certain little bit of high ground that we very recently lost.
0: The Caterpillar and
1: Hill 60. Aye. But before we discuss how that turned out... I just want to have a quick chat about the person who developed the chlorine gas used by the German army in World War I. Cool. Fritz Haber was a German-Jewish chemist who was very enthusiastic about joining the war effort in 1914. He was pro-war, and he was one of 24 scientists who signed an open letter extolling the virtues of going to war and encouraging you know, the German sort of generals to push forwards and to, to give, it a, give it the beans...
0: Mm. give it a piece <laughs> just throwing Heinz beans at people and
1: he, was, yeah. he was both a scientist and a stickler for detail because he pointed out to the German commanders that although Germany had signed an agreement known as the Hague Convention of 1907 mm-hmm. that prohibited the use of chemicals in shells so you couldn't use you couldn't fire projectiles okay. with chemicals in them at, at the enemy, that's unsporting the convention didn't altogether ban the use of chemicals on the battlefield. So it's like, we're not allowed to make uh, chemical weapons that we fire.
0: There's a loophole. here. Yeah.
1: And for identifying this potential loophole that would allow mass murder, Haber was made the head of the chemistry section of the Ministry of War in Germany. Okay. Haber busied himself working out the relative strength of poison gas he would need to release in order to kill people over differing amounts of time. Because that's always very important to know. This equation I mean, it, is now known. Science. I mean, maybe he just saw it as a fun little maths problem that he could <laughs> while away the hours working out. But the equation he came up with is now known as Haber's Law. Okay. Which is a lovely thing to have your name linked to in perpetuity, isn't it? I need to I figure mean, out the strength of gas I need to kill six orphans from five hundred yards away. He's probably really proud away. of
0: that, though, isn't he?
1: Oh yeah. Oh, I think he really was he was he was contributing to the war effort he was helping germany win yeah and he happily defended his work reasoning that death in battle is pretty much the same if it occurs via a bullet or and this is where i have a bit of difficulty with it via hydrochloric acid literally melting your lungs from the inside out
0: oh that's not a nice way to go because is that's
1: it? that's how chlorine gas works as it mixes with the water vapor in your breath it turns into hydrochloric acid which then goes into your lungs so it literally melts your lungs. That's
0: awful, isn't it?
1: And I don't know about you, but I'd rather have the quick gunshot to the head.
0: Yeah, me too. Yeah,
1: you know, that's Me too. Cleaner. Yeah. Also, it's a bit more, at least someone had some intent behind it. You know, even with machine guns and things like that and Gatling guns, at least somebody was intentionally...
0: Trying to kill you. Yeah,
1: whereas with the gas, it was kind of just release it in the vague area and whatever happens, happens. Yeah, yeah. if the wind so this, blows this is, in the wrong direction. Is this
0: like the start of, obviously this isn't nu- nuclear, but um, mm. this is the start of that chemical warfare.
1: Well, yeah, it really is, you know, I mean, chemicals have been used in a limited way up until this time, but this was the guy who kind of, you know, he went into the first industrialised war, and he went, well, if we're industrialising things, how about chemical warfare? further, something we could industrialise, and it's going to be really, really successful. Oh, God, then we've... Yeah. Not everyone shared his enthusiasm. And one person who voiced a few slight misgivings was his wife of 14 years, Clara, <laughs> who was a woman's rights activist and a pacifist, who was not She's... best pleased that her husband had suddenly been reborn into a supervillain. She seems quite nice. Mm, she was. She was a bit younger than him. Um. She was very idealistic. Uh. Just over a week after the first use of chlorine gas on may second, nineteen fifteen, she made her views terminally clear by committing suicide using Haber's service revolver to shoot herself in the heart. What? Which is a you know, a gesture filled with symbolism. That's um I'm using your gun to shoot myself in the heart. This is That's... what you have done to me.
0: That's brutal. <sighs> Yeah, that's the ultimate win of an argument as well, isn't it? Like, come back from that.
1: Well, he's, he's not going to have the chance, is he?
0: No, exactly. Mm.
1: However, if she'd hoped that this would lead to some soul-searching on her husband's behalf, she would have been sadly disappointed. Haber didn't even wait for the funeral before setting off to the Eastern Front to see how his gas worked against Russians.
0: <laughs> my gas is more... I'm not going to do the accent, sorry. my <laughs> My gas is more important than you...
1: Well, well, you're now dead. So, by definition, you know I've got to get on with my job.
0: Yeah, (laughs) I'm Uh, sorry you couldn't stick around, love.
1: He was married again two years later, so it really didn't. I don't know how people do
0: this, right? Mm. I've not even found. I know that you're married, Mm. but um, I've not even found one person that's willing to marry me. And I know people that have been married like four or five times.
1: Mm.
0: Like, how can you find four or five people that are willing to marry you? I can't even find one. Not you. I mean, as in like people.
1: I I mean, I guess it it depends on what your threshold for marriage material is.
0: I mean, I would be an absolute nightmare to be married to. Can you imagine? I'd be like, right, um, we're moving tomorrow. <laughs> I've got uh, a new job because I want uh, to. Four four hundred miles that way. You need to pick up all your stuff, and you need to come with me. I'll be there two months, right? And then I'll be like, no, we're leaving. Come on. <laughs> pick up all your things we're going remember
1: when you said this was a big mistake yes yes you you were right but this next one will be absolutely tip-top this is this is the one i can this is the
0: one do you know i've been saying that for almost 40 houses that i've lived in in my lifetime
1: that is a that is a large number of houses isn't it you know Mm -hmm. we think of ourselves as nomadic and since we've been married we've lived in five houses
0: I lived in three separate cities mm. last year. <laughs> alone. T- alone.
1: Oh. <laughs> yeah. No, I, d- I meant three separate cities, last year alone, not last year alone. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> when you put the but, comma, it really changes but, that sentence.
0: But yes, but, I mean, both of them work. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, three different cities,
1: Talking about, two different
0: countries. Talking
1: Sorry. about living in different places. Amazingly, after World War I and the German surrender... Haber tried to gain French citizenship. (laughs) He moved his family to France and he hoped that they would just ignore the multiple deaths that were attributable to his chemical, you know, weapons campaign.
0: It's fine, I'm a changed man.
1: Well, they denied him citizenship, but what he was not denied was a Nobel Prize for chemistry, which he won in 1918. It wasn't. I mean, he was obviously very good at what he did. Yeah. It, his Nobel Prize wasn't for working chlorine. It was uh, something around ammonia. I couldn't understand exactly what it was, but he figured something out about ammonia. Probably how okay. it could be used to counter the effects of chlorine. And kill everyone. Mm. Haber and his new family had to flee to France at the outbreak of World War II. They moved to America, where Haber learned, to his horror, that the deadly chemicals his work had helped to create and weaponise... Had been used to kill millions of his fellow Jews during the Holocaust.
0: I was going to say yeah, because he was um, half Jewish. Yeah. So,
1: I mean, he couldn't. He couldn't is even. It, this complain.
0: is pre-hating on the Jews when he in was Germany. Yeah,
1: this was before Hitler had decided on his scapegoat uh, that he was working for the government to help you know with the the war. But during the Second World War, he suddenly saw what what you know the. The sort of norms that he'd set, that it's, it's okay to use chemicals to kill large numbers of people, came out of a And he can't even claim, oh, no, this was a totally different weapons program because one of the things that was developed in his lab was Zyklon A. Right, and well, that's,
0: so explain to me what that well, is.
1: Well, um, the, the chemical compound that was used in Auschwitz, at least, was Zyklon B. So he can't, he can't claim, oh, no, that was something completely different. It's like you, you created the prototype of the same gas they used... You know, even has the same name. Can you you imagine, like, you've literally
0: put all your own clan to death, essentially. Like, you are part of that.
1: Well, you've definitely helped to speed it up. Did it? Oh, okay, fine. Showing that he did actually contain some shred of empathy, Haber committed suicide shortly after finding this out in 1946. Okay. However, that was not the end of his tragic legacy. That was the year
0: my dad was born.
1: Is he Haber reincarnated? Uh, It sometimes feels like it. (laughs) (laughs) But yes, um, even though Haber was dead, he had had children. And one of his children was a daughter called Claire, who had decided to become a chemist, just like her father. However, she was trying to atone for the sins of her family by developing... Okay, is this from
0: his second marriage? Uh,
1: I believe this was from his first marriage.
0: Okay, oh God, so she's lost her mum and she's lost her dad from...
1: Suicide, yeah. Yeah. And she was trying to atone for, for her dad's sins, you know, to try and absolve the family of the guilt. So she was working specifically on developing an antidote for the effects of chlorine gas to try and save people who might be exposed to it. She felt she was making good progress when the funds were pulled from her research abruptly as they needed to be redirected towards something called the Manhattan Project.
0: Hold on, I've heard of this. But I can't remember what it is.
1: Developing an atomic bomb.
0: Ah, that's it. Yeah.
1: <laughs> she committed suicide in
0: 1949. Wow Yep. 19- oh my God, so that's 46 and 49. Okay. Yeah.
1: So, and don't forget the, uh, the mummy in 1914. No, 1915, let's be fair. So that's a long time, though, isn't it? Yeah, so Between mother, father and difference. daughter all committed suicide due to gas, essentially, and the mass murdering of people. For different reasons, but it was all linked to mass murder. The
0: thing is, there's definitely trauma there.
1: Trauma. Yeah, she, the mum committed um, suicide because her husband was dealing in mass murder, the husband committed suicide because his entire, you know... Um, sort of religious, cultural sort of, it, you know, had yeah. been almost wiped out due to the things he developed for mass murder. And then the daughter, trying to stop mass murder, had her funding pulled for a different kind of mass murder. It's a pretty wild story, that, just as an aside. Anyway, yeah, it is wild. We're, not, we're not really talking about German chemists. We're back at Hill 60. Hello. We're on May 1st, the day before the suicide of the wife. Fritz Haber oversaw the use of chlorine gas against the troops stationed on the high ground. Although the British soldiers had been advised, if they were to become a victim of a gas attack, to make improvised gas masks by weing on a rag and holding it over their mouth and nose.
0: Oh God, people pay for that.
1: The strong wind meant that the gas was on top of them before they even had a chance to unzip the trousers.
0: And you said I couldn't bring smut to this episode. <laughs> here yeah. I did.
1: I mean, some of them were, you know, half-massed. they have managed to get the, the, the zip halfway down, but <laughs> it just wasn't quick enough. <laughs> the hill was retaken by the Germans, with the British losing a total of more than 3,000 men. Now, the British commanders, they felt the use of gas was not fair. And this was probably mainly to do with the fact that the Brits didn't have access to gas at the time to use, you know in retaliation. Mm. And they decided that if they couldn't have the high ground, then nobody would get to have the high ground. Okay. And they hatched a plan to remove the strategic advantage of Hill 60 once and for all. Are oh, they're going to get rid of it. Under the guidance of an Australian geologist called Edgeworth David, whose names to me feel like they're the wrong way round. And I kept writing David Edgeworth. But no, his name was literally Edgeworth David. Um. Mm. They, Interesting. He'd, he'd um, developed his skills doing sort of deep mining in um, Australia. So, you know, like those massive super mines that you see now in yeah. Australia where they have, you know, like a dumper truck with wheels as big as a three-story house. Yeah. He was like the, the father of that kind of heavy deep mining industry. And he planned to set a series of mines under the German front lines, with okay. the biggest ones of all being reserved for Hill sixty. up to this point the tunnels that were being dug by both sides tended to go no deeper than 20 foot Edgeware suggested digging a little bit deeper and ordered a shaft be sunk to 90 foot deep before setting out across no man's land to the areas beneath hill 60 and the caterpillar yeah the only reason the allies could hope to achieve such a feat is because they developed a method for digging tunnels especially in clay like soils called clay kicking like it Clay kicking had been developed for the laying of Vic- uh, Victorian Sewers and worked by having a man lying at a 45-degree angle on a board facing the front of the tunnel. He could then use his leg power, assisted by gravity, to cut chunks out of the clay in front of him using a specialised shovel. So it's, don't work hard, work smart, let gravity do the work. Hmm. And I bet
0: that was in London, wasn't it? London clay?
1: Yeah, that's where, it, that's where clay kicking first developed.
0: There you go. See, my story originally, like, it all comes, it all comes it together. comes mm. together.
1: Isn't it great?
0: Isn't it wonderful?
1: I mean, people don't know how heavily we rehearse these things beforehand. <laughs> we, we spend days workshopping it, throwing around little bits, threads that we want to tie together at the end.
0: My flatmate asked me earlier, he was like, oh, so what's it about? And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> Literally don't know.
1: Hopefully it works out. Yeah. To be honest, it's very rare they don't.
0: So, no,
1: I in in fact I think they get better. You you've got your man at the front, the kicker, and he's kicking away. Uh taking off chunks of clay at a time. Then you've got your second guy, and he's his job is to put the clay that's been kicked off into bags. Can you guess what his title is?
0: Bag kicker. Bagger. Bag holder. Bagger.
1: Bagger. Yeah. Uh so he bag them up and then you've got the third person whose job was to take it back from the, the sort of you know, front of the tunnel back out to the shaft where it'll be pulled out. Can you guess what the guy operating the tram was called?
0: Tram. Trammer. Yep, trammer. Was it? (laughs)
1: Yeah. So you had your kicker, your bagger and your trammer. (laughs) And the great thing about sort of bringing out all of these sandbags full of clay is they were able to fortify the front lines just, you know, just, just to the south of Hill 60. They fortified those lines possibly better than any trenches at any point on the entire western front because they were pulling out tons and tons of this clay and they had to try and pretend like this wasn't them digging a massive super tunnel so there were just sandbags full of clay everywhere everything was fully insulated with these clay sandbags i
0: mean it's pretty impressive
1: oh it really is the amount of the amount of earth they moved and it was all by hand i mean i know they had a little tram but you know carrying it up the shaft was all done by hand the other benefit that this method had because you had a three-man team is you could rotate it so you'd have a, a go at being the kicker and then when your legs got tired you'd move across and you'd use your arms to do the bagger job and then when your arms and legs were tired you'd use the trolley to just move things forwards and backwards because that was slightly the easier job so you could you could actually get a lot more speed up in terms of the rate at which you dug the tunnels yeah then you could in the traditional sort of like one guy just scraping away at the front
0: I mean, leg, your legs are definitely the strongest part of your body, are not they? Oh. I would say.
1: Compared to your arms, yeah. Don't yeah. skip leg day.
0: Don't skip. I do lots of walking. I do at least 10,000 steps a day, at least.
1: Well, good. But throw in some lunges, maybe a few squats. That'll help. Might just
0: go around punching people. <laughs> I, don't, I don't like your outfits there.
1: Boom! This is more just an, you know, an explanation. You're looking for some kind of way of um, explaining away your hatred. It's exercise! Yeah. I need to punch <laughs> at least seven people a day to keep these arm muscles tight and firm. Mm.
0: Buff. Buff ting.
1: So yeah, by, by rotating as a three, they could move forwards a lot quicker and they'd do six-hour shifts, so you'd spend about two hours doing each of the tasks and then you'd move out and another three-man team would go in. In order Clever. to get moving as quick as possible, they brought in three-man teams from Britain, from Canada, from Australia... Working in this constant rotation for over a year.
0: Ah, oh, that's dedication, man.
1: And then finally, in June sixteen, uh, June sixteen, June nineteen sixteen, not twenty sixteen. They're still <laughs> at it. In June nineteen sixteen, they had created the network of mines, okay. complete with two massive chambers, deep beneath Hill sixty and the Caterpillar. Okay. Being at least 70 foot deeper than any other tunnels, and knowing that the clay-kicking technique was virtually silent to minimise any risk of the tunnels being found by the Germans, mm. the Allied forces felt that they could they could spend a little more time stocking the chambers. Uh, just chit in. Just, you know, when we're talking about, you know, 500 pounds of gun cotton, they were thinking, well, there's a bit more soil on top of this until we get to the Germans. We're probably going to need a little bit more of a bang-bang. Yeah. Hmm. They also felt that once they'd stocked it, they could afford to wait until they were ready. You know, there's no chance of it being discovered. They can choose the moment at which they're going to detonate these particular um, caches of explosives. And in fact, the chambers will continue to be stacked with explosives, slowly but surely, for another full year.
0: This is... they're in it for the long game. Yeah,
1: they started digging this in 1915. We're moving into June 1917 now. Jesus. Because by June 1917, it is estimated that, along with the other mines that had been dug further up and down the line, there were £990,000 of explosives ready to be detonated directly under the German front lines. And for I mean, scale, <laughs> the first time that they tried to blow up Hill 60, the total had been just over £5,000. And we're now on 9, that 990. Thousand pounds.
0: Right. Okay. So they were. They go big or go home.
1: Oh yes. Although what really annoys me is that they didn't add another ten thousand pounds and round it up nicely, because they could have had a million pounds.
0: They've clearly just run out of patience, haven't they? That's, like, yeah. Oh, that's everything. God, we're done.
1: At the end, you remember those little snappers that you used to get as a kid? Yeah. 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 That, they were just emptying those just to add just extra bits, <laughs> just like anything they could find to them. <laughs> Pow, 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 pow. On the evening of June sixth, nineteen seventeen, General okay. Charles Harrington gathered members of the British press.
0: That's a very British name, isn't it? it?
1: Well, that's how you become a general. You have a dependable British name, and people feel they can trust you. Do you
0: reckon I could be one? I'm o- Oliver James.
1: Oliver James Green, Brigadier no, General Oliver James Green. Yeah, I think you yeah. could. Yeah. Yeah,
0: and then they look at me and they're like, no.
1: but anyway this man who was definitely he was made of the right stuff was Charles Harrington and he announced well he said he was going to make an announcement Um, and when he did it was a rather cryptic one you know I, I mean maybe this was because he didn't want to give it away in case there was a German spy amongst the British press pool yeah but his statement was thus gentlemen I do not know if we shall change history tomorrow but we shall certainly alter the geography I
0: mean, that gives it away completely.
1: To you. I would say.
0: Yeah, but I know what they've done. The press know
1: nothing about the tunnels. Okay. And actually, if we're being honest, most of the soldiers in the Allied army knew nothing of the tunnels. All they were told is that there was going to be an offensive. They were just told, tomorrow we're going to launch an offensive. I
0: suppose the less that people know, the better... Although, do you reckon loads of people knew more than they let on? I bet it was just like, oh. There probably were
1: some rumours knocking around. But again, this was, they had to be as secret as possible because if the Germans found out what was happening, they could scupper the entire thing. Yeah. It's like, Robert, did you hear about that?
0: Yeah, Bob, I did. I don't know why I said Robert and Bob. It's the same name, isn't it?
1: Well, no, but they've they've realised they've got the same name and they've differentiated by using a contraction, which is probably what you'd do. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. If I met another Joseph, one of us would be Joseph and one of us would be Joe, just to make it easy. Mm. Mm. Or at least that's what I'd offer. I'd want to be Joe though, so we might hit some tension if we both want. We the I quite
0: like the name Joseph.
1: Mm. A bit too biblical for my. Uh, I mean, I, my tastes. Yeah,
0: I've just had Jesus tattooed onto my chest, yeah. so I can't say anything.
1: Yeah. Also, Joe is is literally you know mediocrity, isn't it? Honest I Joe, don't... working Joe. Average Joe. Average Joe. You know, it's a name that doesn't attach too much ambition, which I'm quite happy with. Anyway, the tunnelling divisions were ordered to detonate the mines at ten past three on the morning of June 7th, after which a massive advance would take place. All the soldiers waiting to advance were told was that there would be a signal. And when they said, what will the signal be? Everyone went, <laughs> you'll know. Mm. don't you worry there is no ambiguity to the signal is it going to be like a whistle no 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 not like a whistle yeah just just, trust us there there will be no (laughs) doubt in your mind about the moment that you need to start moving forwards what happened next was described by journalist philip gibbs suddenly at dawn As a signal for all our guns to open fire, there rose out of the dark ridge of the Mesonese and White Sheet and that ill-famed Hill 60, enormous volumes of scarlet flame, throwing up high towers of earth and smoke, all lighted by the flame, spilling out into fountains of fierce colour, so that many of our soldiers waiting for the assault were thrown to the ground. The German troops were stunned, dazed and horror-stricken, if they were not killed outright." Many of them lay dead in the great craters opened by the mines. Jesus. He had just witnessed what was arguably the single biggest explosion to have taken place in the pre-nuclear era. The people of France thought they were experiencing an earthquake, and it was reported, at the time, that even the Prime Minister of the UK, David Lloyd George, had heard it at Downing Street.
0: Yeah, that can't be true, surely
1: it may have just been a propaganda thing, but yeah. it, it was big. I mean, you can exaggerate it, but it was it was the biggest explosion there'd yeah, ever yeah, been yeah. to this point. It was a doozy. They did good. It is estimated that upwards of ten thousand German soldiers were killed within five Gee- minutes. Jesus. Yeah. So, you know, that that 1,400 people killed by mustard gas in a couple of minutes doesn't seem so uh, mass-murdery now, does it?
0: God, they didn't do it by halves, did they? They were like, right, <laughs> we're on it. This is it. Yeah.
1: With a large-scale advance immediately after the explosions, the German soldiers who hadn't died were quickly overrun, and all of the Allied targets had been gained before nightfall. So they had, like, a wish list. If this goes really well, we'd like this, 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 and this. Yeah. If it goes sensationally, we'd also like this, 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 and this, and they got everything they wanted because the Germans were just in full retreat.
0: Well, I suppose they weren't expecting it, were they? No, they really weren't. Not even half of the British people were expecting
1: it. No one expected it. (laughs) Except for one manic, I mean, Australian miner. He was like, if this doesn't work, they are going to be pissed at me. (laughs) I've asked them to sink two years into this project. That's so funny. Because it was probably part of him thinking. Is that enough explosion to get through the 90 foot of soil? Or are we just going to hear sort of like three damp farts? <laughs> it's weird,
0: like if the, um, like when they were constructing the railway and they were just putting that on the heap pile, mm. that they were creating this massive strategical blot on the landscape.
1: Oh, yeah, the un- the unforeseen consequences of human uh, engineering.
0: Mm. Was the, the railway must have been nearby then.
1: Uh, the ra- yeah, the railway ran between uh, the Caterpillar and Hill Sixty. I mean, by this stage, it was no longer a railway. You know, it was just twisted Can you metal,
0: just um, chugging along. Hello, boys. Hello.
1: <laughs> what just explodes to you, either side of you? Oh yeah. my god! I think we're going to be late to work, darling. I think we're going to be late. Everything's on fire. Everything. That man. That man's on fire. <laughs> Unfortunately, for all of the soldiers on both sides, the success of the mining project at Hill 60 set the scene for the Battle of Passchendaele, Mm. a hellscape that would claim the lives of over 800,000 men, some of whom literally drowned in the mud, being too exhausted to go on any further. It was the fifth largest loss of life of any battle in World War I. So sad. And one of the saddest things I found out, the two biggest losses of life in World War One were the two final offensives right? so like you can add an extra two million plus to the death toll just based on the final couple of months of the war where really the writing was on the wall. It It
0: just got brutal though didn't it? I suppose people go into like panic mode don't they?
1: There was a lot of desperation at that point but imagine surviving all of this you could have survived the first battle of Ypres, Passchendaele you know all of these different massive battles of the Somme, and then when you're being told the war's pretty much over, that's when you get mown down. When you're starting finally after four years to hope that you might get It's that home. anyone
0: actually came home. Mm. I mean, I know a lot of it's like the lost generation, isn't it? Like, there just was a whole bunch of people that just didn't exist um, after they all got killed. Mm. Um, But, yeah, it's surprising how anyone came home at all. Or, like, the guilt that you must have felt.
1: (laughs) I mean, what you say about generational trauma, you know, it's it's amazing that we're probably... Yeah, we probably are the first generation where our parents didn't have direct experience of a major war. Mm. You know... Yet. (laughs) Oh, always the pessimist, but... You know what I mean? Like, our parents' parents were... Most of them were children during the yeah, war, or young yeah. during the war, but they, they definitely experienced it, and they experienced the hardship and definitely the depredation afterwards of rationing, because yeah. that went into the 50s, didn't it? Oh,
0: yeah, my dad remembers that. Yeah, right. and, I mean, my dad was older, but he's older.
1: You know, and our great-grandparents were the ones who were, you know, experiencing World War I and the horrors of that. Mm. Yeah, it really does sort of... It's not. It's not surprising that there's a generational difference because we, you know, we've grown up and we've not experienced any of the hardships of war in our lives.
0: No, we've no, we no, experienced no.
1: other things, but there's there's not been that same thing.
0: Yeah, I think there's. Yeah, it's uh, uh, recession and plague is kind of our thing,
1: isn't it? <laughs> like... Well, don't forget we're, we're at the moment we're moving into 1918. Oh God! Yeah. So. Yeah. All all of those people who did manage to survive... The Spanish flu. Got the Spanish flu epidemic. Which actually came from
0: America, I believe, originally. Like in some farm in Texas or something.
1: God, a conspiracy theory. And that farm was owned by old George W. Bush Senior, Senior, Senior.
0: (laughs) Who created... No, I'm not going to say it. (laughs) He created. I'm joking. I'm joking. I don't
1: believe... We all know he released the Spanish flu in order to be able to sell the cure so that he could move up in society and then his son founded the CIA. Yeah, there you go. Before you know it, the bushes were everywhere. Oh, I've
0: listened to this really odd podcast about the like um like this massive conspiracy theory about them having like uh, a massive like pedophile ring and like it was just fucked. Oh, Pizzagate um, and the. That's it, all yeah, the, yeah. All yeah. the Democrats had a yeah.
1: pizza place where they take children. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah.
0: It's just absolutely absurd. But, ah, and um, then,
1: then you look at who the actual unmasked paedophiles are, and it's like, oh, God, do you know what? It's the people I thought it would be. Yeah, exactly. Are you telling me Bill Clinton might be a paedophile? Oh, I never would have guessed. And the funny thing is, everyone on the left is going, because they're like, well, it might be Bill Clinton as well. And everyone's like, if it is, arrest him. We're, yeah. We're not rooting for our guys. We're rooting for the people who aren't pedophiles.
0: Yeah, exactly. Just don't be a pedophile. It's yeah. not that hard. Like we uh we have to do like abuse training and stuff like that. And it it should be as simple as don't abuse people. Well done. You've completed the course. But like why do we have to explain to people about abuse? Just don't do it. Easy. Just be
1: nice. Think
0: just be Would nice. I like
1: that to be done to me? If the answer is no, Don't do it. Don't don't do it. It's nice. Nice and simple way. It's nice to be nice. Yeah. Anyway, the site of Hill 60 was bought for 15,000 Belgian francs in 1920 by Lieutenant Colonel Corson, Mm. who sold a half share to Mr. J.J. Calder, who was Scottish, I believe. Strong name. Mm. Ten years later, Calder donated the site to the nation, and it has been taken over by the War Graves Commission. (coughs) Okay. If you visit today, you can still see the craters and lumps of concrete that were left untouched following the explosion. There are also a number of memorials to many of the divisions who had fought and died over the man-made hill during the conflict. Unfortunately, the museum that used to be housed on the site has been replaced by a cafe, because capitalism, Uh, maybe? Yeah. Oh, Mm. I
0: love a museum.
1: Yeah, and... I don't know why it had to be replaced by the cafe. Why couldn't, they couldn't, have, just...
0: couldn't they have had an extra?
1: Yeah. I, I, I always thought the two went hand in hand. You have the museum and then and you then have you the And then you have a cafe. coffee. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you can sit down and look at all the tourist hat you've bought and start to get those first pangs of regret about the tourist hat you've bought. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that key ring that you're never going to put on your yeah. keychain. And then you, you plan the next little museum you're going to go to. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Of particular note amongst the monuments is the memorial to the 1st Australian Tunnelling Company, the men who had been responsible for pressing the detonators on June 7th. If you go and see it today, you may notice that it has a few bullet holes in it. And this is not a design feature, but is evidence of the fact that this area was fought over again dur- during World War Two, as, although it wasn't as high as it used to be, Hill 60 was still considered to be strategically significant.
0: Just because of where it was located, rather than... Because, obviously, the hill's not there anymore.
1: Uh, w- mm. It was it was still a hill. It just wasn't quite as big a hill, and it was quite pockmarked with oh, craters. Okay. But, essentially, yes, it, it was fought over again, and the Nazis did destroy a number of the monuments, uh, mainly the ones to the British um, companies. So they had mm. to be rebuilt after World War Two. But the Australian one, they didn't knock it down... But it it got a few scuff marks in the fighting. Mm. Uh, it got shot a few times.
0: It's so interesting. I love that. Like them pockets of history that mm. kind of um, are just still there. I mean, when when I was in Berlin, I was I can't even remember what the the monument was, but it's this massive thing in the the middle of a roundabout, like a um like a tall tower kind of thing, and you can go over there and sit and have your photo and that taken with it, and. Um, I was wandering around. I was like, "Oh, they well, they've not kept this very nice, have they? It's all <laughs> chipped." And then, um, and then I was looking at it again, and it's when the Soviets came in, mm. and um, when there was a like massive battle between the like Nazis and the the Soviets when they were coming in, and they've left it all there as a kind of yeah, um, you got
1: to you got to leave the history there. Not oh, gonna...
0: I love it, I love it, but it just it didn't look like until it explained what it was. It just looked like it was just really. I've now got an Not image well of you kept.
1: walking into Auschwitz and seeing the wall that they used for the firing squads and you just rendering it. Just, oh, I'll sort that out for you. <laughs> <Just get that laughs> Can you imagine? Nice and smooth as a baby's arse now, mate. It's all yeah, good.
0: Yeah, I fixed it, mate. I fixed it. You'd
1: never have known there were any holes in that wall. We're great. <laughs> Can you imagine? Oh, no, no. No, I can't. But yeah, there you go. That is the story of Hill 60, the site of the largest explosion pre-World War II in the nuclear age. Arguably I want to go to Hill 60
0: now, mm. just for that cafe.
1: <laughs> uh, there's also some some proper concrete pillbox sorts of bunkers there. That you can just go oh, and okay. wander around. Nice. And I'm pretty sure it. You know, if you went at night and you started digging down, you would find a lot of bones. And probably wow. a lot. Do of, you reckon? Oh well, they they've never cleared the site. They've never. They just left it. Just left
0: was. it. I suppose that's. And, the right thing to do, yeah, isn't they, it? Really? They
1: put the monuments up and they've just allowed it to go back to nature. So, you know, it's it's almost a bit like a nature reserve now. It's just yeah. that you know that underneath there is, you know, at least 3,000 Brits, at least 10,000 Germans, but possibly much, much more of each. Uh, some Belgians, some Australians. There were some New Zealanders who were helping with the tunneling as well. I mean, Shout out were, to New Zealand.
0: It must be, like, obviously, when they're going through that, it's like, like, they're the enemy and they're the enemy, but it's, like, not even, well, 70, 80, uh, uh, from World War Two years later, like, 100 years from there, can you imagine if they were, like, our great-great-grandchildren are just going off to, like, Berlin for the weekend? They'd be fuming, wouldn't they? I don't, I've, I don't stumped
1: know, because, you, I've
0: stumped you there, haven't I? I've because made you... the
1: thing is, you know, prior to all the vitriol of World War One, we were very good friends with yeah. the German. I mean you know our our queen and german, at the time yeah. was the longest ruling monarch you know the victorian age had gone on for what seemed like forever and the one thing that people know about queen victoria was that she always wore black because she loved her little german you know prince so much mm, yeah germans were true. our friends all of the, yeah all of victoria's you know kids were necessarily half german yeah yeah
0: married into german families yeah, some of them. you know
1: and it just, it, it, it's a shocking sort of indictment of human intelligence that we were all so easily taken into the idea that Germans were essentially baby-eating savages, despite the fact that most people knew someone from Germany. Mm. So, yeah. Well, yeah, yes, yeah, Otto, yeah. he is fine, but the rest of the Germans are obviously terrible.
0: It's almost like somewhere, like, hate... Like, people have this hate, and they need to, like, push it towards... Somebody. So if it's not if it's not the Germans, it's the Jews, and if it's not the Jews, it's the gays, and if it's not the gays, it's the people from Pakistan. Do you know what I mean? It's just like, why can't we all just be as one?
1: I mean, that's a very complex question, isn't it? Probably. I want the answer now, Joe. I guess there are <laughs> c- certain people find it comforting to be able to take the perceived deficiencies or the the failures and rather than own those and have to do the hard sort of work of looking at yourself identifying where you could improve and improving it it's so much easier to have a scapegoat say no the only reason i don't have everything i want it isn't because i haven't worked on myself and i haven't tried my hardest and i haven't sought the opportunities it's because that guy over there has taken mm. all the jobs or
0: divide divide and conquer i suppose if they're fighting in the bottom tier and mm. they don't have to worry too much about what they're doing at the top tier oh wait that's capitalism
1: yeah, that doesn't change <laughs> hi there it's emma chief organizer at consistently eccentric here to remind you all that if you like what you hear you can catch up with all previous episodes and session series by searching for us on acast spotify and itunes how fancy You can also join us on Instagram at consistently eccentric podcast where we update on the weekly episode and post all of our bonus content for you lucky lot.
0: See you next week.